You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. Just wanted to send out a special cheerio to to Rob and Peter. It's approximately 4.02 and first up on the show we're going to be speaking with Vicky Roach. And Vicky has been on our show many times now over the years and she's an Aboriginal writer and activist. Um and has done a lot of work around prison abolition. Aboriginal women are the largest group of prisoners in Australia, despite making up only 2% of the population. And we'll be speaking with Vicky presently just about women in prison and also looking in particular at the pandemic and what her thoughts are on the way prisoners are treated. And not just her thoughts, but the facts are that prison, the people in prison are treated abominably anyway, but imagine what it would be like during a, the health crisis such as this and also during stage four restrictions. So we're going to be speaking to her about that. And then after we speak to Vicky, we'll be speaking with Ian from the Refugee Action Coalition in New South Wales, and he's going to be speaking about the coronavirus and refugees and asylum seekers. So, yeah, um, pretty soon we're going to be going on to speak to Vicky. People out there in the radio world, show some love to the 3CR. You know, and if you're listening and enjoying the programs here, yeah, man, great radio station. It is how, how it was built by community and the community ownership. And that's a powerful thing to have within community. So show some love, show some support, and please subscribe. From the north to the south, to the east, to the west, let the baller take you home. Island style represent, put your soul to the flow. Love your set, represent, raise your pride to the sky. Love it like it's the best. My power, bring it back home. And you're back with the Doing Time show. Welcome to the show, Vicky. Hello, Marissa. It's so great to have you back. I haven't spoken to you for so long now. And we are speaking in very very unusual circumstances. Yeah, it has been long, hasn't it, Vicky? It has. has. Now, you haven't been on our show for a while and... 
case new listeners have tuned in, I'm, I'm just wondering if you could just say what land you're from. Well, I'm a UN woman, um, and I'm actually living on UN country now. Beautiful. And just as an introduction for Vicky, the first time I ever interviewed her was when I think Vicky had just got out of prison, and we, you were talking about your lived experience and helping that you were helping people, prisoners, to vote, and there was a campaign about that, wasn't there? Yes. Yes, there was, and a successful high court action. Absolutely. And in fact, Vicky's contact with the criminal justice system in Australia began even began when she was two. And yes. I just wanted to, to alert listeners that she is part of the stolen generation, isn't it, Vicky? Yes, yes, yes. I was a terrible criminal at the age of two. Oh, a terrible criminal that... You know, you removed in an era when Aboriginal children were taken from their families in order to be raised by white people in foster homes and institutions. Yes, well, it was still the age of assimilation um, back then. Um, and they were still trying to breed us out. Well, that's exactly right. Because it's interesting, and, and I, I just wanted to, if it's okay, Vicky, I just wanted to also say to listeners that under the law... At the time, although I think it's still happening now in some ways, any child removed from their family first had to be charged with an offence. Yes, yes, that that seems to be the device that was that was used um, to remove most kids. Um, uh, you know, being charged with being neglected, for example, like you know, how, why does the child get charged for that, even if it was the case? Um, yeah, it was, it was a device to facilitate or more easily facilitate the removal of, of kids. Um, but the worst thing about that was um, it might have been a convenient um, avenue at the time for removal, but what it did was um, funnel us into the criminal justice system uh, from a very early age um, because that initial charge was registered as, as a criminal charge um, when you eventually did come into contact with the police, which was pretty much a given um, for kids who were removed, um, you already had a criminal record. So you were never treated as a first-time offender. You were always treated as an habitual criminal from a very early age. And even though it's no longer law now, there are still lots of things happening in regards to to over-incarceration. The, the rate of removal doesn't appear to have uh, slackened at all, uh, perhaps escalated. Um, yeah, if we were to, to look at the figures, I'm sure we'd find it's probably escalated. Um, and, yeah, it's still a pipeline to prison. And we know that. And we've known that for years. And... Yet we continue with these same policies that ensure that First Nations people, particularly women and children, are trapped in the system for virtually the entirety of their lifetime. Which Absolutely, and ironically, in 1991, a Royal Commission aiming to reduce the number of imprisoned Aboriginal people was conducted 
and yet the population of Aboriginal women in prison has risen by 148%. It's exploded. It's exploded um, because of our high visibility, um, because of racist policing. Racist policing, racist court systems, their entire system is stacked against us from the word go. And, and of course, that becomes our children as well. That's exactly right. And, and in fact, talking about figures, 80% of these women in prison are mothers. Most are on remand. And few have yep. committed any serious crime. Uh, sorry, um, mothers in prison, few have committed serious crime. Yes, that, that's yep. not true. Um, many of them just can't raise bail. Um, they're not given the opportunity for bail because they might not have a um, permanent address. Um, often magistrates will refuse bail to, um, they said, as rescuing women from a domestic violence situation um, or drug addiction, homelessness, alcohol use. Any, any of these things can be reasons why a magistrate will remand an Aboriginal women, woman into the prison system where, um, to be fair, a lot of them think that we will get treatment and help when in actual fact it doesn't work that way. You need to be sentenced to at least 12 months before you're able to access any of the services which are pretty inadequate or totally inadequate anyhow, um, but you can't access them at all unless you're sentenced and you have a relatively long sentence. Yeah, that, that is, that's really a, a gross disadvantage and a, and a national disgrace. It is, it is. Um, there was, there was a, oh, somebody looked at the, at the stats once and there was a 32 Aboriginal women on remand in the Dame Pillars 12 Centre in Melbourne at one time, only four of them received a custodial sentence at the end of their remand. Only four of them out of 32 women. Now, so why were they on remand? Exactly. Yeah. Um, the only solution, of course, is dismantling um, the prison industrial complex which is not as easy as it sounds because it's, um, you have to dismantle the entire system. And it's not, you don't just tear it down. You um, build something in its place, something that's better, something that is um, people-focused, that is all about healing and um, about communities and families and connectedness that, what will protect society and keep society safe, not prisons and police. That's very true. And often what what a lot of people don't realise, Vicky, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that there are a lot of untreated social conditions that lead to incarceration. Can you talk about those? Well, yeah. Um, heaps of them. Uh, homelessness or inadequate housing, um, poor education, lack of education, um, 
poor quality education when it is accessible. Um, There's nothing... You you need to have a home for anything to happen. Absolutely. Not to mention domestic violence, child removal and abuse. Yes, and all of these things are perpetuated by the system against women. The system behaves towards women, in particular Aboriginal women, as an abusive partner does. Uh, I've spoken about this before. They they treat us as though they own our bodies. Yes. And by extension, our children's bodies as well. And they prove this to us time and time again. Yes. By the brutal policing of our children, by the brutal policing of our women and our mothers, um, coming home from a from an after work function and not making it home to to her children in certain situations. Um, that's racist policing, and it you know it's not confined to America. George Floyd, the death of George Floyd, um, really kind of um, opened up the the big picture here and enabled us to to voice what was happening to us that nobody was really sort of taking much notice of um, until America blew up. Exactly. Well, not literally, but you know what I mean, and, until there were riots in the street in America. Um, yes, and with coronavirus happening now, and the threat of putting people into prison for not observing, you know, uh, social distancing regulations and stuff like that is just absolutely ridiculous. Let's and talk about that. So, so we've, we're on stage four restrictions. There's a pandemic happening. How does that affect prison, prisoners? Look, I can only imagine because, as you know, it's really difficult to um, get, in, get any, any information out of prison, particularly now when visits are restricted. Um, I'm sure phone calls are as well because there would be little um, out-of-cell time to access the phones. Well, for women anyway, men have access to phones in their units, but women don't. Women have to be able to get out of their cells to be able to use the phones. Um, it will be intense. Like, I've never lived through a a pandemic in a prison um, situation, but um, I've been through several several other situations in a jail when there's been extended lockdowns with prisoners kept in their prisons, with women kept in their cells and men in, in other prisons, kept in their cells for, for really extended periods of time. Some of it was industrial action um, uh, and, and just other things that were kind of out of our control. Um, it's hectic when that happens. Um, the screws are more toey. And if you can imagine what it's like now, like the fear in the community, just in the general community, is high. Yes, screws are not known for being particularly intelligent, 
So their fear levels will probably be through the roof. Um, they're conditioned to believe that we're filthy and diseased, so they would be treating us like that. And the lockdowns for anybody with it's impossible. They can't isolate people um, effectively in a prison setting. It's not possible. It's not possible. It's not possible. They can isolate women in their cells and do all the shields and and stuff, giving them food. Um, But it's just not possible. Uh, There's people coming in and out all the time, like being released and also being sent to prison. Personally, I don't think that anybody, any, any... Court cases happening now should be should be suspended and everyone released on bail. Um, actually, I think everyone should just be let out of prison altogether right now. And we've just had the had the um, instance trying to raise the raise the age where we incarcerate children to more than ten, and they put it off to after the election. They they, they could not even decide that, well, yeah, 10 is really too young to incarcerate children and restrain them and put speed wads on them and handcuff them and isolate them in in cells, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. Absolutely. That was was shocking to me. I I kind of thought that that wouldn't happen, that they'd raise the age right there and then. But um, no, we have to wait. It's really shocking. I was actually talking to Tiffany in Victoria from Youth Law about this last week. And we also had um, um, Dr. Hannah McGlade talking about it as well. Oh, yeah. Yep. And she spoke quite a lot about, about this topic. So it's not easy. And, and now you were speaking before, just before, Vicky. Sorry, I cut you off there. When you were talking about social distancing and putting people in prison, what did you mean by that? Oh, just that um, people can be sent to prison for for breaching um, regulations or guidelines at at this particular time. Um, And I just find that outrageous. Uh, Why would you put somebody in prison? Well, conditions in prison are not exactly conducive to um, getting rid of coronavirus. It can actually spread at quite an alarming rate when there's congestion and overcrowding. Well, you think of a cruise ship. They were they were likening the, the towers in Melbourne um, to vertical cruise ships. Well, you might as well say that's what a prison is. Yep. Except you've got screws who, who go out and... You know, go to the club and play poker machines and, you know, fraternise with whoever they want, possibly work at different prisons. Um, they're, they're more likely to, to spread in the jail than the people they're standing over. Absolutely. But the fact is we've got it in prisons now and I haven't seen anybody talking about how... They're trying to prevent it, how they're trying to um, contain it, 
how they're um, treating people who have contracted it, what they're doing. Are they just leaving them in prison? Are they putting them in prison hospital? Are they isolating them in their cells? What, what are they doing with them? There, there's just so little transparency about what happens in prison. And, you know, they just kind of uh, repeat, rinse and repeat, you know, order and security, good order and security of the prison. You know, we can't tell you anything. But we need to know what is happening to those people. I can remember having um, a really bad chest infection in there once I thought I was going to die. Um, I couldn't breathe. Um, medical wouldn't do anything. They were just treating me like I was being annoying. Um, and all the girls in my unit sat up with me the whole night, brought all the mattresses out into the common room and sat up with me all night because it was pretty terrifying. <coughs> now, I could imagine somebody with coronavirus in a prison now um, going through that same fear but be locked in a cell alone, not being able to breathe and the screws telling them they were being annoying or um, not not doing anything to help them or um, look after their needs because they're actually scared of the person with coronavirus. It's actually true because, I mean, it's interesting how you're all uniting and the women stayed up with you all night and the guards did nothing. No. No. No, the women were hitting the buzzer, you know. She needs help. Get medical. And no. Can you imagine if... How do we know what's going on in there? Basically, there's been absolutely no media coverage about a health care no. plan in prison. No, no. And if, if I know anything about jails, it'll be ad hoc. It'll be top down. It'll take little little note of or little care in what actually happens to the women or to the men, for that matter. It's actually really scary. I, I know for a fact that if I was ever in prison, I would definitely contract asthma because I, even though I don't have it now, I actually have to have um, a diet of lots of vegetables, lots of spices. Um, to, to, for preventative work for, with my lungs. Yep, and I imagine yep. that people in prison would not be able to have to have access to good food and and even to be able to prevent, to actually prevent coronavirus. I imagine a lot of women in prison, in, in, indeed, people in prison would have compromised immune systems. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Um but, but look, that's, that's what happens. Like, uh, at one time, there was 70% of women in prison, and I think this is nationwide, had um, hepatitis C. Now, a common thing for uh, prison hospitals or prison medical services to prescribe for somebody with sleeping difficulties which every single woman in prison has, <laughs> particularly when of they course. first come in. 
um, you know, c- c- prisons aren't very quiet places, so it is really difficult to sleep. And they give people uh, valerian, which is actually toxic to a compromised liver. Oh, yes. But, yeah. But they, they either don't know or don't care. Well, valerian. Those valerian tablets don't do anything. No, no, I don't think they do either. They should be giving, if they're going to be giving prison people in prison or anyone to sleep, they should be giving them skull cap, which is actually a nerve iron, and skull cap can actually help you sleep, and I don't think that compromises the liver. The only other thing they could get is if, if you really went hard and desperately for something to put you to sleep, they'd, um, or something really terrible had happened, um, they'd give you a stool knox. What's that? Stool knox is called. There's um, a drug in America where oh, yes. it's, actually, it's actually the same drug, just we've got a different name for it in Australia, but people were um, driving and, and doing things in their sleep and not knowing anything about it. Oh, wow. You know, getting up yeah. and, and cooking a baked dinner in the middle of the night and, and you know, not remembering a thing about it. <laughs> Goodness <laughs> gracious me. That, we'd have to talk about that. That would That's very really interesting. So, yeah, Vicky, so I'm going to be interviewing... Sorry? I was just going to say, it's probably one of the worst things you could prescribe somebody in jail. I know, Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I don't think you'd be able to get a baked dinner in jail either. So, no, yeah, I'm, going no. be, <laughs> I'm going to be interviewing Ian from the Refugee Action Co- Coalition in New South Wales pretty soon, but just wanted to make a, a, a final comment here that, you know, there's been a lockdown. Well, there were some lockdowns in the prisons recently, weren't there, because a guard tested positive for coronavirus. Don't you think it's interesting that there's been absolutely no follow-up with the media about what happened? Has there been a spread within the prisons? Have the lockdown stopped? There's no follow-up. No, and there probably won't be unless unless somebody pushes it, and that's going to be hard with the state of journalism in this country at the moment. Um, but yeah, yeah, there there is there is no um, no transparency in that system, and it is very secretive, and they just won't tell you anything. You well, we've had fake, and to... they just won't tell you. Um, you have to go through FOI to get any kind of information, and even then, it will be heavily redacted if they choose to um, relate to that all. So, yeah, I'd be very surprised if we do get any further reporting from the jails. They'll just shut that all down. Let's hope not. But three CR is not one of those, not one of those radio stations that's going to do that. We are going All to stay on that. will send in their, their security firms that botched the Victorian hotel quarantine um, to manage the prison when the prison officers all go on strike because of coronavirus. Here. It's all connected. Which, which company is that? Connected. Which company is that? Um, well, it, it all goes back to Circo. Circo. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> They're called something else, but um, uh, it all, yeah, it all goes back to Circo. It's all connected. 
Wasn't Circo the, the, the... They got Mr. Ward in the van? Yep. And yeah, got another all... 10-year contract after that. Exactly. All right, Vicky. Well, look, it's been wonderful chatting with you and we'll all hope to have you back soon. Yes, let's hope so. Not leave it so long this next time. No, definitely not. You're welcome any time, sis. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. COVID-19 is a sickness that can spread from person to person. It can be dangerous, especially for our elders or people who are already unwell. We can all help stop the spread in our communities. Cover a cough with the inside of your elbow instead of your hand. Wash your hands with soap for at least 20 seconds after you cough or sneeze. Go to the toilet and before you make any food. Keep away from people who are sick, coughing or sneezing. Avoid going to places where there are lots of people. At this time, it is best to stay at home and away from other people as much as we can. If you're feeling unwell, have a fever, cough or sore throat, or worried about someone else, phone your doctor, clinic or medical service right away for advice. It is important to stay connected and strong as a community and keep our mob safe. Visit health.gov.au or your local health service for more information. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile? And adds a spring to your step. What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced, Produced by Yan. And you're back with the Doin' Time show, and we just interviewed Vicky Roach, who is a, a, a former prisoner and Aboriginal activist and writer, and she was speaking about the pandemic and her lived experience of prison. And next up, we're going to be speaking with Ian from Sydney, and he is from the Refugee Action Coalition. Hello, Ian. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hi. How are we, how are we doing? Oh, great to have you, Ian. Um, it's it's been fun and games uh, doing remote radio shows from home. <laughs> I can imagine this. Yeah, yeah, it's a big hassle everywhere. Yeah, it's been pretty crazy. And and look, I haven't spoken to you for quite a long time, but we are speaking in very unusual circumstances, aren't we? And there have been lots of far-reaching consequences for refugees and asylum seekers. Can you talk about that and the effects that the pandemic is having? Yeah, look, sure. I mean, there's been a lot of attention and, uh, you know, in Melbourne in in particular, a lot of attention has been placed on the people who are in detention. Uh, The fact is that the government itself recognises that, you know, that prisons and detention centres are a high-risk environment. Um, We've got, uh, you know, people who are in uh, Melbourne, the the, the MITRE at at Broadmeadows and in the MANTRA, 
you know, hotel, uh, Brunswick, I think it is. Um, and uh, in both those places, they, uh, they're, they're crowded. They can't properly socially distance. Uh, there's no proper procedures inside those facilities uh, to protect the, uh, the, the people who are in immigration detention. Uh, they've banned visiting, uh, but guards come and go, uh, you know, regularly from, you know, both, uh, you know, MITRE and from the Mantra Hotel. There have been a number of COVID scares associated with those uh, two facilities, not just there. There's been a big scare associated with Villawood as well, uh, and Brisbane, and the Brisbane hotels too, actually, now I think about it. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, there's a very real risk of uh, COVID, um, but the government has not, not taken uh, any measures uh, down to the very basic things of, you know, the provision of, you know, proper hand sanitizer, you know, social distancing measures, etc., inside those places. So there's been a lot of attention placed on that. Um, we've seen people arrested and charged with, the, you know, inciting uh, protests outside the Metro Hotel. Uh, Chris from the Refugee Action Collective in you know, Melbourne uh, is facing those charges at the moment. Other protesters have been, uh, you know, fined under the health regulations. So they're very much outside, uh, willing to police uh, people about health regulations, but they're doing nothing about the situation inside the detention centres where people... It's not just a health risk. I mean, there's a health risk by detention itself. I mean, not just the COVID risk, I mean... Uh, there's a health uh, risk with the you know detention itself. The people who are in Mantra and Mitre, um, you know, with about 250 of them in Melbourne, are people who were transferred from Manus and Nauru for medical attention in Australia, and all all they've got is uh, you know further detention. Some of them for well over you know 12 months now. Absolutely, and we've done quite a lot of extensive coverage not only with Chris Breen and the right to protest, but also we've spoken with Moz as well from the oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, good. and quite a few other activists from the Refugee Action Collective. It, just in regards yeah, to the very concerning situation um, inside and the lack of transparency... Yeah, well, because it's um, it's not just that there's a lack of transparency; it's quite a deliberate attempt to make sure, you know, that to, to keep it opaque uh, and to you know stop any you know prying eyes. I mean, there's an associated inquiry at the moment going into um, the, the government introducing legislation again, you know, after another 12 months of trying to take uh, get legislation that would mean they could take mobile phones. Um, off uh, the people who are inside the immigration detention centres. So that would remove, you know, even that small skerrick of, uh, you know, not, it's not accountability in any formal sense, but uh, the fact is that they, it's sometimes been the only way that information has come out inside the detention centres and the, uh, through the, through the phones and cameras that people have on their phones that have only been allowed because of, you know, court action and protest action. Uh, now the government's trying to take that away you know, again, uh, to try and ensure that not even that, you know, little bit of information is able to able to get out. So, I mean, the government is trying to uh, put an iron curtain, you know, around those uh, around the detention centres, um, even even though, like we know, you know, the conditions inside are you know are very bad, as you know, Moz and others would have you know been able to tell you, you know, tell you about. And what's the situation in New South Wales at the moment? Are you are you, got, are you all stage three? 
<laughs> uh, no, it's not quite stage three in uh, in Sydney, but um, the the government has taken a very very hard line on protests, um, and so we saw you know extreme action taken by the police uh, to prevent uh, the David Dungay protest. Uh, he was a you know Aboriginal man who was killed by uh, <clears throat> killed by prison guards in um, Long Bay. Uh, and the, there was going to be a, a protest to deliver the petition. Uh, got about 100,000 signatures on a petition. The police took extreme action, not just court action, but they mobilised hundreds of police, you know, to uh, prevent that protest taking place. Uh, we've uh, similarly, the Refugee Action Coalition has held protests in uh, in Sydney. Uh, we've had, we've had people people fined, harassed uh, in early July. The police actually chased a, a protest of 50 or 60 people through the streets of Sydney from you know, the town hall through back to the immigration department. Um, the last time we've tried to organise protests, we've had, we had uh, three different protests of you know, 20 you know, uh, people who are socially distanced to try and get around you know, the, uh, <clears throat> the health regulations uh, restrictions. You know, at the moment, we've been taken to court, uh, you know, again, you know, to try and prevent uh, refugee protests taking place. So we're facing um, a government a bit like Queensland at the moment, where we've again seen, you know, a Queensland Labor government uh, take extreme court action and police action against kangaroo protests, uh, kangaroo point protests outside the hotel over the last uh, last weekend. Um, so we're continuing, though, you know, we're trying to continue a presence on the pre on the streets and keep raising you know, the issues about, you know, detention because for, well, in in Sydney, we haven't got the hotels that you've got in, you know, Melbourne and, and Brisbane, but you've certainly got people who are still in detention for a long, long period of time. That 33 Circo officers, at least 33, were actually identified being associated with a COVID hotspot in Western Sydney. Um, you know, now we were told all those guards ultimately self-isolated and were tested negative, but if you wanted to see, uh, you know, a, a very, very major risk, uh, that was that was one. It's really interesting. I was just talking about Serco with with my previous interviewee, um, Vicky Roach, who who's uh -huh. uh, an Aboriginal um, activist living in Sydney, actually, and she made the comment that Serco was actually responsible for the the quarant the breaches in quarantine in uh, yeah, I... in Melbourne. In Melbourne, were they? I I understood it may have been a, a subcontracted, you know, like Circo yeah. had the contract, but subcontracted it to some other, uh, you know, outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, the Circo has got sticky fingers in all kinds of detention arrangements. You know, they, you know, pr prisons, you know, prison, prisoner transport, detention centres, you know, security guards. Um, and I, I think, like, we couldn't get to the bottom of it in Sydney, but I think we actually had a very similar situation. I mean, there are 33 Circo guards uh, at, a, at a Christmas not a Christmas party, a birthday party at the Crossroads you know, Hotel, which a roadhouse, which you know, was a particular hotspot in Western in Western Sydney. Now, I do suspect that those 33 were not full-time Villawood employees, but um, you know, worked for other places as well, and we were facing a situation that could have been very, very similar to uh, what we saw with the uh, quarantine hotels in in Melbourne, uh, what the uh, neither the Circo nor the government would reveal in New South Wales uh, 
was whether that was the case, uh, whether some of those people who identified as Serco employees were actually doing stints in other in other places outside, you know, kind of nightclubs, you know, other detention facilities, you know, who knows, you know, wherever they they may have been, but they, that that information wasn't uh, revealed. But certainly inside the detention centre, uh, people were very very concerned and felt that some of the people who the um, the government was saying were you know negative they were getting away with uh, you know any indication that there were positive circo guards by not associating them with villawood but associating them with you know other you know other other facilities so there's ways in which they can get around you know uh, revealing the you know the full in you know information about the covid the covid risk inside the detention centers and not only inside the detention centers but everywhere Yes, yes, they are everywhere, um, and, and I think the risk is highlighted by the fact that so many, there's so many guards, you know, come in and out. Um, and um, well, we know, you know, situation. I think, but it's a comparable situation to, you know, the aged care facilities. You've got people who are trapped inside a facility. Um, there may not be, you know, spread inside that facility until someone brings it in from outside and with so many guards coming and going um, and obviously in Melbourne at the moment there's a you know particularly there's a higher risk of community transmission than there is in in New South Wales um, but uh, nonetheless it is a, a very real thing and one of the things that we've actually started uh, in conjunction with uh, you know with other refugee groups including you know grandmums uh, for refugees um, is to say you know look there is only one safe way uh, that there should you know to respond to the COVID risk and that is to release people we've got places we know we've got places um, that that all the people who are in detention at the moment could be accommodated uh, in the in the community um, and um, you know certainly willing to provide those places to find those places uh which is you know the what they what the government should be doing they're talking about opening christmas island which will mean there'll be another round of you know of shuffling people another lot of interaction between you know guards and people in detention sometimes in very high risk you know situations but uh, the sensible thing and the only safe thing is to release them uh, so they can be accommodated in the community. It's where they should be anyway, regardless of COVID risk. But the COVID risk simply, you know, adds to the dimensions of what the uh, what the government is putting people through in, in immigration detention. And release the Tamil family instead of spending all that money. It's crazy. Look, it is it is completely lunatic, and it's one of the things oh, you may not have heard, but there's a, a, a man of immigration um, who was in, in Mida had died uh, this morning. Um, yes, now we don't we don't a, know article in the age. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we don't know you know the cause of death yet, but um, if potentially he is someone who could have been on you know Christmas Island. Uh, now there wasn't proper medical attention. There's no doctors available. There's no medical facilities open in Mitre on the you know on the weekends. All they have is a nurse to dispense med medications. Um, who knows? You know if he you know could have got medical medical attention. You know yesterday when he was feeling you know unwell. Um, if he'd been taken out of uh, Mitre and to, you know to hospital to get proper tests, we could have had a different result. Uh, if we've seen. Um, you know, we we had to move the Tamil mother. Or the government had to move the Tamil mother for tests off, you know, Christmas Island, you know, to Perth. Um, those the medical facilities are simply not available on Christmas Island. Uh, you're going to send a whole bunch more people to Christmas Island if they get sick. 
there's only one place they get a, they get attention. That that's and that's not on you know Christmas Island. The whole thing is a uh, you know it's a farce really. And I think you no matter whether you're looking at COVID in the detention centres, in the hotels, the reopening of Christmas Island, um, you know, is over and over again. What you see is the government putting the their political stance that they have on refugees at the front of their policy making, and not you know the the human rights or the you know the best interests of people who are in immigration detention or the community for that. Absolutely, because it is it is all connected, Ian. It's all connected. You know, of course, in this interview, refugees and asylum seekers are at the forefront, and we're talking about violations of human rights and COVID nineteen and the pandemic. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And we just lost Ian, but it's probably... He's got to leave pretty soon anyway um, to go to an event. It's approximately 3.46. But we were just speaking about the pandemic. And just to wrap up that topic, the pandemic and refugees and asylum seekers, basically it was more about the fact that it's affected the community also in a big way as well. And I was saying that although refugees and asylum seekers were at the forefront of the interview, that it's it's basically affected everybody and that there are lots of breaches that do need to be to be looked at and more transparency. It's approximately four forty seven and I'm gonna be hopefully reading reading out an article um pretty soon. In regards, in from Green Left Weekly, and this is in regards to an Aboriginal death in custody, and I thought I'd um, read out this article until the end of the show because we really don't have much time left, but it would be good to do just some more work about Aboriginal deaths in custody. But before I do that, just to, to thank you also to our guests, um, Ian and Vicky. So basically I'll be reading this until the end of the show. It's from the Green Left Weekly and it's entitled Justice for Stella, Wayne Morrison's Mother Speaks Out. And it's by Rachel Evans, July 7th, 2020. Latoya Rule and her brother, Wayne Fallon Morrison, 
Carolyn Anderson, descending from Wiradjuri and who has resided on Karuna land, Adelaide, for most of her life, was waiting for her son, Wayne Fallon Morrison, to appear at an Adelaide court on September 23, 2016. The 29-year-old had been arrested the previous weekend and despite it being his first arrest, he was taken to South Australia's infamous Yatala Labor Prison. However, just before the Wiradjuri, Kukagatha and Wurunga man's bail hearing, a court clerk handed the judge a note informing him that there had been an incident and Wayne would no longer be appearing. Following a few frantic calls, Caroline and her daughter, Latoya Rule and Alan Morrison, turned up at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, not knowing what to expect. Carolyn was told that her son was not at the hospital, although Latoya had overheard a conversation suggesting that he was. Demanding answers about Wayne's whereabouts, security escorted the family to the car park. Caroline, Latoya and Ella were made to wait there for hours, while assuming Wayne was inside. They were not told anything until the Deputy Corrections Minister fronted up. Now is the time for First Nations justice and systemic change. Stop the brutality, abolish prisons. The day Wayne was due to be granted bail, 12 prison guards wrestled Wayne to the floor of a prison corridor. Staff claimed that there had been an alteration in his, in his cell, which had led to the incident. Caroline has always refused to watch the distressing footage of guards placing Wayne in handcuffs, ankle cuffs and a spit hood. Wayne was moving before being shoved face down into the back of a prison van and driven in a prone position to the high security wing of Yatala Jail. At the end of the three minute drive, Wayne was pulled unresponsive from the van. No cameras recorded what had happened inside. One guard who had been in the front told an inquiry that Code Black had been muttered. No immediate attempt was made to resuscitate Wayne. It took two and a half minutes before CPR was begun. At 3.50am on September 26th, the young First Nations man died in the custody of Correctional Services South Australia. Caroline and her family have suffered through an unfinished two and a half month long coronial inquest a South Australian government inquiry and an ombudsman's inquiry. They have sat through a Supreme Court case and an appeal of that decision. In August, they will attend the, the, the resumption of the coronial inquest. This process has been so drawn out because the seven guards who transported Wayne in the prison van have attempted to be excused from testifying on the grounds that they might incriminate themselves. Meanwhile, 19 prison guards attempted to have South Australian Deputy Coroner Jane Bashua removed from the case. Green left Rachel Evans and Sydney criminal lawyers Paul Gregordi spoke with Anderson about her family's struggle for the truth and justice. Your son Wayne Fallon Morrison died in Royal Adelaide Hospital on September 26, 2016, three days after he was pulled unconscious from a prison transport van. Around 12 officers were involved in restraining him. What do you have to say about the way your son was treated? Caroline, they treated him humanely like he was a body with no personality. It was excessive force. I still don't know why they couldn't just handcuff him and walk him through the corridor to the next unit. It was just a three-minute drive. 
Apparently, Wayne was taken from the police cells straight to Yatala Prison because there were no available beds in the remand centre. He was put on remand but sent there after his first time being arrested. Yatala Labor Prison is the harshest prison in South Australia. It's where murderers and rapists are sent, hardcore criminals. It is not a place for someone who has never been arrested before. So the van was called and five officers put him in the back while he was wearing a spit hood. Yes, he was on his stomach face down with his ankles tied together and hands cuffed with his wrists behind his back. He was put in the prone position and the same officers got into the back of the van with him. While they were restraining him on the ground, a female officer said he was spitting and aimed for a spit hood. A male officer who was facing Wayne said it looked like he was just trying to clear his throat and blood and saliva was coming out of his mouth. The spit hood was put on and the officer that was facing Wayne could see that it wasn't put on correctly but nothing was done about it. Spit hoods are banned right across the world. South Australia is the only state or territory that's still using them in this country. The reason they're banned is that they're known to cause death. The prone position has been shown to cause death, hasn't it? Caroline, exactly. They did everything wrong. The SA government is just about to release a new law stopping the use of spit hoods in youth prisons. My daughter Latoya and some others have been pushing for spit hoods to be banned in prisons. They put Wayne into the back of the van face down his stomach. And then the officers got in with him. There was one officer at both of his shoulders and two on either side at the back. When they opened the door at the other end, they realised he wasn't moving. They pulled him out, they put him down on the ground. Someone turned him over, then they took the spit hood off and that's when they saw he was blue. And they didn't try to resuscitate him? No. When they pulled him out of the van, they didn't start resuscitation straight away. But a young man who hadn't been on the job for long walked in and saw Wayne on the ground without even thinking this kid started CPR. But then one of the managers told him to stop and go to get a defibrillator. From the time they pulled him from the van to the time the ambulance came and they tried to get some response from him, it was more than 50 minutes. I know that because a nurse told me. The coronial inquest into Wayne's death began in late 2018. There have been two and a half months of proceedings already, but the inquiry has since been postponed. Yes, seven guards haven't taken the stand yet. They're the main seven. They include the five guards that were in the back of the van with Wayne, as well as the driver and a passenger. These seven guards tried to get an exemption from giving a statement in the coroner's court. They argued that they had the right not to testify because they would incriminate themselves, but that isn't the case. And it's approximately 4.45 if you want to have... That's just an edited version of that article. And Google Greenleft Weekly if you want to look at the rest of that. And it's goodbye from Marissa. Stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Do and Time show. And we're going to go out now with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella, from the Rumpy Band with Beyond Zero up next. Bye. Stay safe.
Dios está 